Hello and welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wildbo's most homegrown work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. We're still in uh, Arc 9, huh? I was expecting <laughs> after 9.9 that we would definitely be going into an interlude or something, but uh, no, I guess not. We're still here, still going, and it actually <laughs> seems like it's still not yet over now. <laughs> seems like it's going to be a long one. Yeah, I mean, 11 chapters is, I think, as long as the longest arc has been in this story. Uh, Pale's been very consistent about, like, 9 yep. to 11 uh, uh, chapter arcs. So, does that, Sorry. Does that, think, does that mean you think we'll, we'll uh, be heading out of it? Uh, we'll get an interlude next or something? I mean, yes, but also I've been saying that since 9.92, so... Mm. Mm. Yeah, um... Yeah, we'll have to I, I, see. I can't imagine the next chapter being an, an interlude, though. I can. I, I've been I've been hoping for a Melissa interlude for about a week now. That oh, was my shit. guess yeah. for where nine dot ten would be. And I think seeing this next fight against the creature uh, as from Melissa's Melissa perspective, would be fun. yep, and a, and a nice way to make it a bit shorter and just sort of wrap up the arc there. <laughs> yeah, that it would be. I saw something weird that I couldn't quite make out, and then Lucy ran over and punched it, and then I couldn't I couldn't quite make out what happened next. <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of that. Or maybe she, it'll be her losing her innocence. Who knows? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll get to Melissa later on, I suppose. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> let's start, though, with uh, Shaking Hands 9.0. Oh, actually, before then, let's start by reminding everyone once again, in case you missed it last time, the Doof Discord is public. So it was previously just open to patrons, but now it's open to anybody. So anybody can come in and hang out and have a good time uh, chit-chatting about their favourite Doof Media shows. Yeah, uh, we've already had a bunch of new friends join after mm-hmm. last week, and it's definitely a lot of fun to see. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that link uh, in this week, and if you can, come and stop by, hang out. Yep, perfect. Um, now let's get on to Shaking Hands 9.10 which is from Lucy's perspective, um, Snowdrop emerges solo from the cabin basement with Verona still inside. And man, Snowdrop's backwards talking in this high-pressure situation really, (laughs) really makes it not at all easy to understand. Even Avery, who usually understands her pretty easily, is struggling a bit here. Um, And we know what happened in there, so imagine how confused Avery and Lucy are. Yeah, like I I feel like Avery is getting what Snowdrop's putting out there but like snowdrop isn't at all covering how serious this is yeah um i like there's a bit later on where lucy kind of loses it um like there's a bit where she basically says to snowdrop you need to start elaborating more <laughs> um and like god yeah i was like i was trying to figure out why snowdrop isn't doing it i guess she probably has to be careful with her sentence structure because she yeah. knows her words get flipped around yeah uh, and I guess this is just an example of when that can be like a really inconvenient factor. Mm. Yeah, hundred um, percent. It's so inconvenient right now for sure. <laughs> uh, there yeah. is a bit though, quite early on, where uh, Snowdrop just describes what's going on as peak Verona, mm. um, which is hilarious enough to make up for how frustrating this is mm. for me, at least. Yeah, um, oof, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, so unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't know, it's just funny, because, like, the fact that Snowdrop calling something peak Verona is still funny to me, 
you'd think by now Snowdrop's mechanic would be not as funny and like just engaging and fun as it still is. Mm. Like it's a real testament to how it's used. I think that something that feels at its surface so simple and juvenile as she says the opposite of what she means all the time mm. is still like keeping me like just giggling or like yeah <laughs> just engaging with yeah. what she says so much more yeah wabo definitely has a knack for knowing just how much to use it and how much to let it come you know be in the background for a while and then come back at the at the right pivotal moments to to really make it land yeah and to to use it in different ways like obviously right here we see it's used to carry tension because we know that she's not conveying what's going on very well mm. and it's used to convey the humor because she gets to say things like oh yeah she's peak verona right now yeah um, yeah yeah but i think it's a combination of all those factors yeah i, I don't even know if there's a way to express in a in two words the opposite of peak verona without being somebody who always says the opposite and saying peak Verona. Like, is there a more efficient way of saying Verona is the worst that she has ever been in two words? I don't think so. So it, it just, like, it works so well. Yeah, well, I think, like, that was something that jumped out to me, actually, at one point in my life, read. I was like, I wonder if Snowdrop tries to be very verbose and precise, whether maybe that, like, her, her flippingness does, like, undermine that. Mm. Um. Because we've seen it, like, it, it extends to things like, you know, her, like, hand gestures and stuff. So mm. maybe if, like, if her intent is to be specific and very clear, maybe that's part of what gets inverted. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting thought. Hmm. Um, so Edith, who is the monster in this chapter, uh, I found her very interesting at the start of this chapter, feeling very, like, feeling very intimidating and a very big presence in a way that I had never really felt from Edith before. She's always kind of felt like she's a bit uh, in the background or behind the scenes to me, whereas in this chapter, she's so she's so intimidating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's almost two, two parts to what you're saying here because I definitely, on the one hand, I, t I totally agree that, like, for me, Edith felt much more like a a force than a person mm. in this chapter. Mm. Um, yeah, like we'll get to the whole her getting separated from her humanity in a bit, but um, it's just like you know, usually the Kennedys are so sort of openly open with their enemies. You know, like they go out and they negotiate, they try to convince people what they're doing is wrong. Here, Edith feels like the bad guy in a stealth video game, like. Mm. They're, they're, keeping out of her sight she she's not this person she's these eyes and this ability for everything to go wrong she's an obstacle more than more than a person mm. yeah yeah she's it's that same vibe when you feel like you have a something that is inhumanly pursuing you um yeah which edith doesn't quite hit in this chapter but definitely makes strides towards especially when she just kind of shows up in the ruins and you're like oh fuck she's been following us closing in <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um but then there's that there's that other side to what you were talking about as well where how normally she feels like she's much more in the background uh and and she's come out to the fore as a bit of an aggressor in this chapter mm. and i think that's super interesting um 
Hold on. Apparently, this is later on in the notes than I thought it was. <laughs> we'll have to get to this in a bit. I can't find where I wrote this stuff down. <laughs> Stay right, tuned for a my... A little teaser for later in the episode in the there. Part. This yep. is a much longer script than we usually have, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, as an aside, as we sort of get into all of this um, like chapter, because obviously 9.9, we talked about it a lot. It was a huge chapter that felt like this massive step or culmination in Verona's story. Mm. And so an obvious, in retrospect, it was kind of obvious that we jump into a bit of like a Lucy chapter here because now we step into her best friend's shoes. Sorry, Avery. As <laughs> she's like freaking out and she's trying to like guess as to what's happened. Yeah. And it's just such a cool use of the like alternating POV structure of this yeah. story because we know what's happening. And we kind of get to watch as Lucy freaks it out and see like what she's freaking out about and what she's focusing on. And yeah. also the effect that Verona's pain has on Lucy. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's really interesting. I found it especially interesting that um, Lucy obviously has considered is there something to do with your dad and dismisses it, which mm. I find really interesting in the context of Verona's dad's escalating abuse as a kind of marker of like, how much Verona has normalized it and by extension kind of demonstrated to her friends that it's nothing to be that worried about. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I think Lucy's guesses are all centered around her mum, which Yeah. Um, that's actually a shitstorm we haven't gotten to yet, Lucy. Um, but Verona did say she'd call her mum, so that's coming. Yeah, yeah. God imagine <laughs> it's gonna get worse, Elliot. It's gonna get worse. I think we've touched on this before, but, you know, the first third of the chapter felt very Avery, of the story, felt very Avery-centric. The Blue Heron Institute stuff had a lot of Lucy development. Now it seems like we're getting uh, finally into some of Rona's stuff, and, man, I'm just not eager to see it all play out. <laughs> I know all these swords of Damocles that have been hanging over us for the entire story are finally going to drop, and we're seeing that, and it's just terrible. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree on divvying up the story to each character that cleanly, because I'd almost say a Avery at the end of Arc 8 felt like her big moment where she decided to be her arrival and departure person. Mm. I think each of them has had their own sort of climaxes to their character arc in each section of the story. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, I, I'm kind of mainly thinking of the big beats of the story, I guess, e.g. Yeah. Forest no, you're right. Trail. Like, yeah. Yeah, you're right. If if I try to pick like pick out one thing that happened in each place, it would be, yeah, the Forest Ribbon Trail, like Lucy getting her implement yeah. fucking with Alexander. Yeah. And then yeah, Verona's house situation has been one of the has biggest been things. Definitely the, the final third uh framing. So yeah, God. Um but I guess what I mean is it just feels like there's a lot more left to resolve with Rona, which makes oh, me yeah. very nervous. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Um, yeah, but but yeah, like so. I guess I, like I just really love the way that that Lucy's perspective is used in this chapter because it feels like a having a cake and eating it too moment where Walbo's sort of using this dramatic irony of us knowing what's wrong with Verona mm. to not just have that tension of. Like, oh, God, Lucy, figure it out. We need you to make it better. But also exploring how it affects, yeah, Lucy in that way. Because, you know, this is a story that we, we keep saying this is sort of is talking about these ideas of community and how we work together or how we deal with people who won't work together. 
and like Verona's pain affecting Lucy is like an important part of that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I guess there's one part where Lucy sort of nails down exactly what her problem with all this is, where she sort of says, Verona becoming a cat like this mm. and refusing to communicate was stirring some anxiety deep in her stomach. A worry that had been there since Verona had confessed that she didn't want to be human anymore. That Verona could do this, go down that road, and stop being Verona anymore. And, like, this is the part that gets explored later in this chapter, and that I'm so keen to see where we go with Verona after this, because Verona constantly thinks of herself in this way of, like, she's she's been broken by her dad. Mm. And, and like that's, I, I feel like this fundamental part of where she doesn't want to be herself anymore. A big part of it is because she thinks that herself has been broken. Mm. Um, and like the whole the whole point of exploring this side of it from Lucy, Lucy's head is it's like Lucy likes who Verona is right now. Um, you know, and it's sort of like, well, fuck your dad. Like Lucy is somebody who wants you to stay as you are, and it's like those are the people you need and who are going to be empathizing with your problem and understanding you that will save you from doing something stupid well and and do i mean we learn that verona admits that effectively if she hadn't had the support of lucy and avery she would have done something pretty stupid here which is effectively give up her humanity with the furs yeah exactly exactly um yeah yeah uh we'll get to this when verona rejoins the group i guess um what happens next? Edith goes to the bathroom, finds the water is not working, which obviously sets a clock for the trio, uh, which sets things into motion. Verona manages to defend herself by uh, making an explosion go off, which sends Edith's body flying and seems <laughs> like in a way that is, I could picture it so vividly, the explosion yeah. of Edith's body hitting a thing and kind of spinning and just like, the awful cracking and crunching sounds that it might must have made. Yeah, the way the text delivers it is fantastic. Like, yeah. I felt like we entered slow mo as Lucy kind of describes seeing this flash, and then like the body just flies out, flying in the opposite direction to how she kind of assumed it would work, and it like crumples, and and then we get this detailed description of the girl by candlelight like putting herself together and emerging from the ashes, and like agonizingly walking over to that body um yeah it's it's really well written that uh, in the way that makes me think that's why we all sort of hang on to it as this really distinct visual yeah for sure um i i also love that i mean we've discussed before how the the word or the concept of an explosion immediately ratchets tension from zero to 100 and you Mm. feel it here as well like oh yeah you feel Lucy's eyes widen as an explosion is set off this huge change that is caused and it literally lighting a, a fire, this explosion that is effectively setting off uh, what will culminate in the conflict between the Kenneteers and some of the Kennet others. Yeah, because I, 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 I don't think I've thought it, but I think the Kenneteers still thought there was a way they could get out of this without it turning violent or being a confrontation. And this moment really solidifies everyone that okay no this is a fight now yeah um as much as they can have a fight with edith when nobody's technically allowed to hurt each other yeah um but yeah and and then as we sort of touched on before as well like edith literally gets separated from the the girl by candlelight which i i think feeds into that 
more terminatory vibe that the girl by candlelight has this chapter it's like yeah. she literally gets separated from the human part of her and she patches it up with wax which is yeah. gonna be interesting if that like is it just gonna turn into skin or is edith gonna be part wax person now mm, yeah um but yeah it kind of feels like the mask has come off a bit now that she's just walking around the world as the girl by candlelight which we've not really seen before mm yeah who knows yeah you're right it's like it's like that scene where you shoot the terminator with a shotgun and the you know the holes appear and he kind of reacts and then just like they close up again and yeah keeps marching uh, and you see you the see vibe. the metal underneath not flesh mm. yeah yeah um oof. uh it's spooky it's spooky stuff um Especially because we're, as you mentioned before, we're in Lucy's perspective and we just have no understanding of what Verona's up to. Like, <laughs> and as we see next chapter, she could, she kind of could literally be doing anything. Like, we really don't know at all what she's going to do next. <laughs> and that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but that's also why I love her. Yeah. Oh, she's such a wild card. Um, I, I think what stood out to me in regards to this is how much the tension here from lucy's perspective is just so much more verona's emotional state like lucy's obviously worried about where verona has trapped herself and how verona's emotions are affecting the fact that she has kind of trapped herself but it's almost like most of the worry and, and you know by word count is lucy trying to figure out what has happened to verona why is she like this what can i do to help her to get her back into a normal emotional state like it's it, it feel it, it felt very believable to me that like even amongst all of this bullshit with explosions sending edith flying across the field lucy's still very much her primary concern is how is verona doing yeah i mean it's like what we talked about uh in 9.9 .9 where even as crazy things are happening with the capital p plot of the story what you really care about is these really strong characters and the connections between them and, and how they are emotionally processing what's happening in the mundane way. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's a really similar vibe because like I've definitely, you know, like in, in one of the like CW superhero shows when the characters have a fucking DNM in the middle of a fight or whatever, it always just feels so tacky and shit. Mm-hmm. But that that isn't quite what this chapter felt like. It it felt like Lucy genuinely needed to connect with Verona to understand her and make sure they could get out of this alive. Mm. Uh, and and so the two tensions met, like melded together in a really cool way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It 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 all does work. They're not as as disconnected as I might have implied. They all do work well together. Very. Uh, naturally yeah um but yeah things get pretty uh frantic uh the the lucy's narration gets a bit frantic in this interaction with verona in the basement as well uh, i love this line where just kind of in between um other thoughts that lucy's having she thinks verona had found it verona had come up with a game plan verona was in a bad place these like fully disconnected thoughts that are just kind of popping up that are um clearly so frantic Hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, there's so many reasons for her to be stressed right now. Mm -hmm. um, I do like Verona was in a bad place as a bit of a double meaning here <laughs> as we as we enter the basement. Um yeah, I 
I mean, like this whole moment that they sort of have with the backpack as Lucy kind of finds out that the backpack has been broken and starts to finally realize it's just so good. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, it's good stuff. Um, so yeah, Lucy heads into the basement, sees Verona doing something uh, as Edith recovers and comes to get them. Uh, Verona reveals what she has done, which is opening a portal into the ruins and they escape there. And it's like right as the girl by candlelight looks into the room. So she misses seeing it's them by like a second yep. is the impression I got. Yep, definitely. Which again ties into that kind of Terminator vibe, right? Yeah, like we're just like the skin of their teeth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, uh, as they head into the ruins, they get this memory. Um, Verona chooses a scene of them spending time together and having fun watching, in air quotes, anime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Lucy uh, kind of calls it out as a scene of camaraderie and friendship. Uh, especially in the face of horrifying visuals, I suppose. Um, yeah, I wonder if there's more to pull out from why this memory was chosen. No, I think I, I think you, I think you're kind of on the money there. Like that was definitely my interpretation. Is it's, uh, and we'll get into it more as as obviously Verona opens up to them. But uh, like what Verona is holding on to at this point are those times where things being bad or ugly actually brought them closer together and allowed them to lean on each other and be friends. Mm. Uh, and that's why this memory was on her mind as she jumped into the ruins. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And, uh, and it, it, the memory takes us to a new part of the ruins, a happy part, mostly kind of, um, it's like, I, I got the vibe. It's like the heartwarming section. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting because we've never seen this part of the ruins before. We've gone to fucking depression and desperation and um, it, it just makes me think that like the amount of times, I think this is the fourth time the Kenneteers have used Jessica's ritual of using memories to get into the ruins and this is the first time one of them's gone to a happy place? Yeah. Um, yeah. What What are the implications of this? I don't. I don't know. I mean, like, so yeah, like, I'm getting the idea because the way Jessica's ritual works, right, is you sort of expel an echo of yourself based on one of these moments, mm. and then you kind of chase it with the rest of you into the ruins. Mm. So basically, this is just the first time that that echo has made it somewhere nice. Yeah, which I think just just sort of highlights how in general when we think of strong emotions or at least when the Kenneteers do they mm. tend to focus on the negative and not the positive yeah you're right when when you think of the idea of emotions in general I guess not even just strong emotions it's always the negative emotions that come to mind but that's not all that exists <laughs> yeah yeah exactly also they leave Avery behind for a little bit which is just funny <laughs> to me yeah Avery <laughs> catches up but um it definitely feels like a bit of a, uh, uh, a Verona and Lucy bonding moment. It's just it's just classic Avery that she ended up in the position where she had to be the one left behind. Yeah, but, she um, crawls yeah. through the goblin warrens to find them. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's a huge part of it because, like, you know, back in the Blue Heron Institute when they shoved her, uh, it was right after Layla died, I think, and, and like, Lucy shoved her into the ruins. Uh, Avery was then like fully on her own and had to go find Jessica and, and blah blah blah. Whereas 
Like this time it takes her, I got the impression it was like a minute or two to just make her own way to where exactly where they were in the ruins. Like that's mm. huge for, for the girl who's worried that she keeps getting left behind or left alone. The fact that she knows she can catch up to them in like a minute, regardless of where they go. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's a finder, so she can yeah, find them. Exactly. And <laughs> I guess and that's, yeah. Like I feel like that's probably super important for her own confidence and, and psyche that she can do that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Verona is not doing so hot here, huh? Um, <laughs> the thing that prevented her from putting on the furs was the colors wouldn't suit her. The colors would clash. So that's pretty slim. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I, I can see that just being the way brains work. Like, I definitely feel like I've had moments like that where it's like, I think what, what it is is Verona knows in her gut that it's wrong and she shouldn't do it. But there's like this part of her brain that needs for there to be some sort of logical reason. And since she's not in touch enough with like herself and her emotions right now to fully process what that is, she's just latched onto the idea that the colors are bad. And like, because her gut wants her to say no, and that's the only reason her brain's come up with, she's just kind of aligned these two feelings and been like, yeah, that's what it is. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't get the impression that's actually what it is, but I might just be projecting here. Cause I, I definitely do that sort of thing all the time about big decisions. I'll, I'll go with my gut feeling and come up with some bullshit reason and convince myself that's actually the reason I'm doing it. Yeah, that's fair. I could see that. I don't know. I I don't trust Verona's state isn't bad enough that this is the legitimate, legitimately the reason. I mean, you're right to be concerned if that legitimately is the main thing keeping her. I, she does also say that she made promises she wouldn't do it without consulting them, but um, yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. The way she says that, it kind of gives me the vibe that, I mean, if anything, it feels like that's the reason that, that she thinks of uh, kind of after the fact. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's something that she would give weight to in a moment where she feels this low. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I might be projecting here, but I could also see Verona playing up this angle because she thinks it's kind of funny and it's her way of trying to lighten the mood. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> that's a fair point. Uh, sorry. I've got one other thing from this section that just a bit stupid but no, there's sure. a moment so yep. when, when avery arrives they all come in for the group hug right like our avery comes in and joins them and turns into a group hug mm. except not snowdrop snowdrop behind them sits down on the pile of furs mm. foreshadowing <gasps> oh my god the Carmine Carmine possum, possum. <laughs> i mean maybe that's how because you know i've been so obsessed with how we're still going to fit in the familiar ritual and stuff mm. um you won't need a familiar ritual if Snowdrop becomes an immortal god being. Mm. I mean, yeah. So <laughs> therefore it's going to happen, I guess. Yeah, um, confirmed. Lucy gets Verona talking about the practice, which kind of pulls her back into the present a bit. Uh, then they begin to plan their next move, and Verona elaborates a bit more on what exactly has happened. Yeah, I, I really love that bit you touched on where Lucy... Uh, starts to bring up the practice because she does it a couple of times and it's like this whole segment is very much Lucy podding, they're prodding and like pushing Verona to talk but also being very careful not to take it too far and like I don't know it just feels like what we're talking about like all this stuff like about how Lucy wants to care for Verona and, and everything that I feel like this chapter is about 
it's such a great kind of climax to that where it, this is like Lucy being very measured and careful in how she brings this stuff up and trying to understand Verona. Mm. Mm. Yeah. She does well, doesn't she? Um, she kind of is clearly responding very well to what is seeming to to set off Verona or, or kind of continue to be traumatic for her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like she, yeah, she, I, it's not so much just that she walks that balance very well, which I think she does, but like so much of the text is dedicated to her figuring out how to walk that balance. Um, and so that, that clearly becomes the focus of the story in this moment. Mm. It's, it's like Lucy thinking about how best to approach this situation, which, you know, we've, we've seen in the past, sometimes she just, will yell at Verona and sometimes that works it, it, often it's justified um but here she she's really putting thought into making sure she's doing this properly yeah yeah definitely um so thumbs up Lucy good stuff um so the plan is for Lucy and Avery to make an appearance to throw suspicion off that the, they're the ones who have stolen the furs well, yeah. Verona makes a run for it to where who knows to to hide the furs, but uh, in the, to their secret base that they just happen <laughs> to have waiting. That's got a perfect idea. like I I don't know. Uh, we've criticized the trio for this before, but let's say it again. This isn't a plan. This is a loose sequence of ideas. I suppose um, <laughs> it doesn't solve any problems for them. It just extends the time they have which I guess is more or less what they've been doing the whole time, and it seems to be working out okay, I guess. Yeah, well, because it, it feels to me like, wait, this is something we talked about earlier in the arc, but like it, it felt like early arc nine was setting up this idea of when we get the furs, that doesn't mean it's the end of things. Like, we don't really know what we want to do with them yet. Do we want to give them to John? Do we yeah. want to do X or Y or Z? Yeah. Um, and and well, like that feels like the part of the story we might be moving into with Arc 10 is it's like, okay, let's say they get the furs and they've hidden them somewhere. Now it sort of turns into, as long as they haven't figured out what to do with them, they have to sit on them as well. Yep. Um, which is going to be a very fun switcheroo dynamic for the for however long that happens. Um, but I feel like that would maybe, like that could be where this is going, is this sort of shift from, like, yeah, as you said, they've got the furs, but thanks to Verona kind of diving in, They've gotten the first before they've actually figured out what they want to do when they get the first. Mm-hmm. So now they've got to, yeah, hide them and then, yeah, I mean, just do what Matt and Edith have been doing, which is pretending to be normal while they try to figure out what the fuck they're doing next. Yeah, I, it, it really is, again, another point in the story where just as we thought we knew what was going to happen, everything got mixed up and now we really don't have any idea what's going to happen next. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. that happens again in in uh in 9.11 right like yeah god yeah this arc keeps just when i feel like i get a handle on where it might be going this arc just goes no 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 i've no, got no no yeah here's some more stuff yeah exactly uh but yeah i i don't know i i'm cautiously optimistic about what verona's up to based on what gets talked about next chapter but um you know i I wish they they could have given the first to Avery. What if she just hid them in the paths? That would be nobody's going there. Well, there are a bunch of others on the paths, right? Yeah, imagine something like the Carmine first getting dropped in the in like the promenade. Yeah, 
or maybe maybe if they take them into the a path that'll be able to get Miss the furs and she can come back and that was her plan all along, perhaps. Who knows? <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no, wait, yeah, you're right. It, 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 this moment was very reminiscent of, like, Arc 2. I'm thinking of, like, your, your comment about how we've complained about this in the past. It was like, I remember in Arc 2 when it was sort of like, everyone was like, hey, don't talk to the fairy. Now, like, yeah, we're going to go talk to the fairy <laughs> yeah um it, it's that similar sort of vibe of these of these three sometimes jumping in way too deep mm. <sighs> yeah yeah we'll see um wait so there's a great moment in the planning of this where uh uh verona says i was thinking you guys could make it your appearance and i'll run for it with the furs and <laughs> lucy just challenges her with that you can't carry yeah and this is where Avery sort of cuts in and she's like easy and, and like getting them both to calm down. And <laughs> I really love this as again, wait, this is just proving why they're a trio and not a duo. Cause as soon as Avery and, and Verona maybe start to get a little bit heated, Avery can come in and play the, the calming factor. And yeah, you know, the, you uh, can go the other way as well. It's the friendly so nice. one. Yeah. yeah. It's just so nice that there's a trio now and that you can balance these things out like this. Yeah. They balance, they uh, balance each other out really nicely, huh? Um, let's, let's touch on the moment where, uh, Verona reveals what's happened and why she's in this state. She, she, she cracks more than we've ever really seen her do, except the, the closest we've got is, is the Ray interrogation, but even that doesn't feel as much as this. Um, yeah. Verona is effectively vowing that she's done with her father or with that home. Um, she doesn't go so far as to actually vow it, but she says, effectively that a few times yeah she she essentially says she thinks if she has to go back she'll just have to be done she can't like yeah she'll have to give up herself to survive there yeah it's grim yeah especially because i remember like early on in the story we we sort of talked a bit about like verona's otherification of herself as like a bit of a metaphor for suicide or, or whatever and then I, I don't know if it was on the cast or just on discord um but but at least i kind of walked it back a bit to just more being a general uh, like lack of acceptance with yourself um so not necessarily all the way to suicide but just being unhappy with yourself to the point where you want to make changes that are unhealthy um and yeah like this this feels like that culmination of that where she sort of reached that point where she's like i can't do this anymore i i have to i i have to either change myself or change something else yeah um yeah i it's just it's clear that she is in such a bad place and there's just no it doesn't feel like there's any action that can be taken and that's the thing that lucy is is wrestling with this chapter is like what can lucy even do here yeah and her and avery continue to wrestle with that next chapter as well yeah yeah um i think great work by lucy getting some promises from Verona that she won't do anything too drastic she won't hurt anyone etc etc I mean possibly Verona will get to a point where she doesn't care about keeping those promises but given what we see Verona being up to shenanigans next chapter I I, I am very glad these promises were made because they at least give a reason why uh, Verona might not go fully off the deep end which is nice yeah well because this is the like I, we we talk so much about how practitioners turn this no lying thing into a bunch of bullshit 
Um, whereas like this is when it's at its best, when mm-hmm. basically it's your friends saying, Hey, promise me you won't do something stupid. And when you say, Yeah, I promise I won't do anything stupid, that shit actually matters. Mm. Like, you know, in any other story, Verona could be like, Yeah, totally. And then, and then go trip, and do something. Over one I mean, that happens. Rock. That happens yeah. in stories all the time, right? Oh, promise me you won't do this. Oh, I promise. And then they just do. Like Yeah, it takes one tiny thing to sort of relapse and then you're doing something stupid. Yeah. Um, so this is like the the sort of practice and the truth telling part of it at its best. And I love I love how like Lucy's promise is don't hurt anyone, like don't do anything drastic. It's very much the Lucy that we've seen a lot of this arc who who wants to be more considered in when stuff goes wrong. Mm. And then after that, Lucy, uh, sorry, Avery also gets her to promise that she'll stay in touch and not disappear on them, which is the very Avery addition to that, like the make sure you're checking in. It's yeah, uh, it's such a perfect combination of of promises from these two. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <sighs> then they also promise to have a new sleepover with Avery so they can make her watch the hentai thing. Yep. Uh, it, Elliot, it's not hentai. Anime is just like that. <laughs> uh, really? The, it's a fine line, Elliot, an oh-so-fine line between anime and hentai. I'll uh, I'll just stay. I'll, I'll maintain my distance far enough away. that Yeah, that line stay away from blur. both. That's my advice. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but yeah, anyway, like this this idea of like Lucy tapping into like Verona picked this memory or was holding on to that memory because it was very much that is the part of her humanity that Verona is still holding on to. This is what she wants to still be her for mm. is things like that sleepover. And so like before they go, Lucy's final thing is she's like, hey, let's do more of that. Like that is what you want. That's what you need. Let's do it again, and of course, it takes the form of torturing Avery with, yeah, the pervy anime or whatever, which is just the icing on the cake. Because what are friends for? Yeah, and you can tell that clearly is of such a delight to think about to Verona. Um, yeah, that that will provide some solid grounding for her, which is nice. I'm just remembered. There's a bit where, like, when they're first describing the anime thing, and Avery says "what," but it's actually spelt in the writing as "w u t." Which is like such a perfect way of capturing how fucking bananas what they're talking about is, <laughs> especially to Avery. Um, like, cause you know, properly it should be spelled what W H A T. So it, the, the vibe is so well captured by that, you know, slang spelling or whatever. Um, <laughs> like, this, this anime is going to be Avery's worst nightmare. Yep. I think it'll be great. I think it'll be hilarious. <laughs> Uh, um, <laughs> yes, uh, so the trio move out of the ruins, uh, having one more fleeting interaction with Edith here. Um, well, actually, isn't it sorry, just, it's wait, just, sorry, the trio the leave the ruins, but it's only Lucy and Avery who have the interaction with Edith here. Yes, because Snowdrop's gone with Verona to provide moral yes. support in the form of pets. Yep. Um. Yeah, so no, you're right. So so Edith pops up for a bit and they bonk her back down to reality. Um, I don't know. I kind of like... It feels like e- Edith slash the girl by candlelight deserves some bonks this chapter for a stupid plan to keep the furs. Yep. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I mean, keeping the furs is one thing. We don't know if they have a somewhat wholesome reason for using them yet, but it's pretty much confirmed that whoever is holding onto the furs is going to murder John, right? So like... Yep. Well, yeah. they caused all this fucking 
chaos, which I don't know. I guess we'll see what their plan is. If they're yeah, planning we'll on see. fixing a broken system, maybe a bit more slack. But yeah, yeah overall, but they are effectively confirmed to be planning on murdering John, which is pretty yeah. irredeemable in my in my book. We'll see. Yeah, definitely bonk worthy. Yeah, definitely a few early bonks, and, and we'll see how we go. <laughs> um, interestingly, Edith feels like much less of a threat here than she did back at the house, and I'm not sure what that is. Like, is it because they're in the reign of the ruins? Is it because I, I couldn't quite track it, but I definitely felt it, and it felt important. Yeah, um, I definitely think it's because she's not fully in the ruins. Like, she's still coming here, and and I, de- I think it's been said as well that for spirits like the girl by candlelight the ruins is the worst place like that this is where they get eaten up and recycled so it, it's like like i think the equivalent would be like one of us trying to manifest in a giant sandstorm yeah yeah true maybe maybe that's what it is um i, I thought one of the interesting things that really comes up here is is when lucy sort of realizes that uh because like, the way edith seems to work is she releases one of her echoey selves and then yes. is able to follow it, which is very similar to what they do to enter the, the thing, uh, yes. the ruins. But what it really highlights to Lucy is Edith is a complex spirit made up of a bunch of minor spirits. Yeah. Uh, so she might be, well, I mean, more complex than we'd given her credit for yeah. in terms of binding. And possibly that's an explanation for why she seems a little weaker if she's kind of divided herself up or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is something that we also see another other in town has the power to do next chapter, which is a fun little thread. <laughs> we'll get to that next chapter though. Um, they head to the surface, and Lucy has a brief encounter with Marissica before calling her mum. So I mean, Marissica knows. It's so right. weird. <laughs> Maybe like <laughs> since nine point nine now, every interaction with a Ken and other is tinged by this touch of like. Of of dramatic irony, I guess, or not quite, because we don't really know what's going on. But it just feels like both Lucy and whoever she's talking to are like dancing around each other's words so much more actively. You know, we obviously Marissa has has been doing tricky words the entire story, but with this knowledge and with the fact that we kind of are now really strongly suspecting she's in on it, her tricky words feel so much more insidious than they did before. Yeah, I think there was a um. Oh, I've forgotten the word I'm looking for, but there was this like fakery of everyone pretending they were still kind of on the same side. Mm. Like the the fact that some people were culprits was this undertone, and it was like on the surface everyone was still working together, and the goals yeah. were mostly around stuff like saving Kennet, which the culprits presumably actually do want to happen. Yes, so yeah there was like this false sense of well technically we're all still kind of on the same page whereas now that they've stolen the furs they've kind of become a threat and broken this fragile sense of even the culprits are on our side that we've had since the beginning of the story and I, i think that's what's changed is there was never an open threat from the culprits because they kind of had the situation under control the balance had been in their favor from the start of this story and we've just tipped it over for the first time and now like you kind of expect them to to lash back yeah um we get an interaction with matthew in a little bit which is very i don't know very tense yeah um Um, but before then uh as you said lucy does talk to her mom and i want to call this out because 
She didn't ask her mum how the job interview went. Bad daughter alert. <laughs> <laughs> I was more just thinking, I want to know. I, like, I was thinking much more selfishly. I'm upset that I didn't get to find out how the job interview went. I'm way too invested in this fictional character's job interview. Mm, mm, yeah, I want her to have a nice, good job, nice life. Um, can we touch on this call with Lucy and her mum? Because there's a bit where, uh, just this one quote where Lucy's talking about stuff going on, saying that Verena might need to come over. Um, but after, there was no response. Mum? Um, sure, honey, I'll be on the edge of my seat until you walk in the door, but I'll trust you there, okay? And it just, I know it's a tense situation and, and Jazz can obviously tell what stuff is going on. It just still felt a little weird to me. I felt <laughs> my read to this was, again, I mean, don't want to keep going back to this well, but that scene in Terminator, um, Terminator 2 maybe? I think it was 2. I, I think I know that the yeah. scene where they use the payphone to call the mum. Exactly right. And it turns yeah. out it was, a term, it was a Terminator the whole time. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the whole movie, but yeah. Yeah, but again, I mean, like, <laughs> just felt felt wrong to me. Felt like Jazz is already compromised or in danger somehow. <laughs> I, I I get what you're saying, and I definitely got the same vibe for mm. a half a second when I read it, but I think this might just be uh, w- like the paranoia of this story living rent-free in your head, because, like, the sentence right before where you started reading the like right before the but after is Lucy saying, we can't come over right now. There's some messy stuff to deal with, which I think hearing that from your 13 year old daughter justifiably sends you into a bit of a like thought spiral. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to just believe that this is jazz being thrown by getting an emotional call from your daughter who says Verona might need to leave her house Anyway, I've got to go deal with some really messy shit. Call you back later? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It feels like a little bit more to me than that, but who knows? I mean, yeah. like I've definitely had a lot of moments in this story where I've let the paranoia get in my head. So I I think that could be what's happening here, and I wouldn't blame you for it because I've definitely been there. Mm. It's so easy. Yeah, fair enough. Um. But yeah, as we mentioned, this chapter ends with Matthew having a brief interaction with Lucy. Lucy covers for Verona, and Matthew covers for Edith, and we part ways with not really knowing who knows exactly who and what is going on. <laughs> yeah, as you said, there's that tension now of, like, we don't know what they know yet. Like, I got yeah. the impression Marissica has already put it together, but maybe I'm giving her too much credit again. The fairy got talked up as, like, chess players so much in the first three arcs that I kind of put them on this pedestal, which I feel like arc eight was trying to get us to bring them down a bit. Yeah. Um, But yeah. So yeah, I don't know. It's fun not knowing how much Matt actually knows or whatever. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows indeed? Um, It's just like a showdown between all these possible accomplices. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like again, it's so great how getting the furs hasn't actually achieved anything really. Yeah, if anything, it feels more tense. Yeah, yeah, it's made things worse. If anything, Um, but yeah, one thing I couldn't help but think is like, do you think we've gotten a peek at all the culprits here? Like the fact that it's sort of we fought Edith the whole chapter, and then the two others we see right at the end here. It's like Marusica, who's our other softly confirmed culprit, 
and Matt, who is just sort of guilty by association kind of deal. Yeah. Um, like, I wondered if, like, these two were very specifically chosen just because they are the other two. The other two culprits. Know. Yeah. Um, like, because Marissica has been tied to it ever since we, so, like, she was the other one who exited via the coin. Yes. It was Edith, the Hungry Choir, and Marissica who yeah. left via the coin. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting then because Matt left by the skull. Mm. So that's why he wasn't initially included on our list of suspects. Mm. But it, like he presumably is, right? Well, like, we've we've gotten some pretty strong hints that he is with um with the uh truck stuff and just the way he covered for Edith so shamelessly in this chapter. <laughs> yeah, so like I guess I mean, yeah, like, I'm just sort of wondering, like, why would he have had the skull? Like, is he intended to be a sacrifice in this plan? Like, because his, his relationship with the Doom, uh, like, I I don't know. I, I, I This is not a very put-together idea, but I just kind of get this vibe that Matt is in on it, but he's intended to be some kind of sacrifice or Edith's going to throw him away. Like, maybe the second the girl by candlelight doesn't need Matt yeah. because she's free. If the girl by candlelight puts the furs on and not Edith, then she, the doom is no longer associated the doom is not with the girl anything. by candlelight, and she doesn't need Matt anymore. Yeah, and if it's only the Edith part of her that loves Matt, she can just discard that part and tell him to go fuck himself. Yep, which will be pretty grim, but possibly quite likely, especially because he didn't enter through the coin. Which, if anything, feels like the kind of thing where Wabo will be able to point back to it later and say, "Gave you all the clues." You know, I even told you explicitly who was involved. It's Edith, it's the Hungry Choir, it's Marcy, and then maybe like Charles, because he didn't have to do the coin thing or whatever, you know? Yeah, I've never felt like Charles was a like full-on culprit participant, but probably more of a accomplice. Somebody who got bullied into doing it. Yeah, I agree. He's just so powerless that I just see him being somebody who was kind of forced into it. Yeah. Um although like again, we still I'm still so shocked at how involved he was. Like he set up this barrier around town before he was forsworn, right? Mm. So like he was willing to work with Miss, and Miss was willing to work with him mm. to set up this very big, very powerful, very anti-practitioner barrier. Mm. That that I, like this is something we haven't really talked about. That says so much about like who Charles is and what or who he was. Yeah. Um. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I like I just find that part of it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It is quite an interesting thing to think about Charles being this person who is so willing to play into the ideal of what Kenneth could be. Yeah, because we knew we know he sort of had a crisis of conscience after that uh, revenant killed like his gang or whatever. But yeah, um, that going to the extent that he would help create this haven for others is still kind of interesting. I think. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. But yeah, but yeah, I guess to to go back to Matt, I guess just this idea that he had the skull makes me wonder. Like this whole story has set up the premise that Matthew is kind of dominating over Edith. Like that has often been a discussion point, but maybe that's not actually the case. Yeah, I think we might get a reversal of that by the end of the story. Yeah. Um, let's continue on to Shaking Hands nine point eleven, where we are in Avery's perspective. Yes. Avery is pondering what to do about Verona when she is interrupted by a, who I think is going to be the fourth Kenneteer, Ram Jam. And I say this because he already has the animal mask, so he's already <laughs> ready to go. What, 
wait, sorry, does this mean Snowdrop is not the fourth Kennedy? Snowdrop just... doesn't yet have a mask, so it's not official. I mean, also, she has Avery... a animal form. <laughs> Avery is close to not being a Kennedy, and I think Verona's about to get kicked out given her <laughs> the state of her mask. So. Also, Ramjam Ram Jam will actually be the third Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually dispute a, a Snowdrop not having a mask because, first of all, she has this straight up opossum form. That's, That's true. That's effectively and, pretty close to a mask. But also, at least a lot of the time, she's formed with a hoodie and the hoodie had, maybe it was just at the start, but the hoodie had like little teeth around the edge of it. Oh, right. Like there's a great fan art of it from yeah, really early on yeah. in the story that I'm picturing, but like, you know, a hoodie with decoration, that's a, that's a kind of mask. I mean, I guess if you bend the <laughs> definition of what a mask is, but why not? Let's go with it. Um, anyway, Ram Jam's no, great. Goblins are great. I love them all. Yeah. Ramjeb's very fun. The way he keeps getting lost in all these tangents and Avery is like getting more exasperated as she's trying to bring him back to the topic is just so fun. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, particularly the bit where he starts going on about like acupressure, uh, puncture pressure, you know, just like, and Avery keeps being like, yeah, but what about this? And he's just like, he's just off in his own world. Yeah. He's great. He's awesome. Um, I, I want to pull out this line that I really liked where Ram Jam says, if she ever needs first aid, I've got you. Nails and spit, which is such classic <laughs> goblin shit. <laughs> What's great is like Darusha said in 8.1 that goblin healing is surprisingly effective if difficult to bear. So his nails and spit might actually work really well. Like if you if you get injured, maybe actually take Ram Jam up on getting what I assume is suturing via nails and some disinfectant spit. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, sure, it'll it'll patch you up. <laughs> yeah, maybe just not pleasant, but, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, I say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there's another great hit moment here where Ram Jam just sort of says, oh, Snowdrop's great. Um, and I just continue to love this this like ongoing thread that all the goblins just seem to instantly think snowdrops fantastic. <laughs> um, like it seems to never take convincing to get a bunch of goblins to be like, yeah, snowdrop fucking rules. Snowdrop is fantastic. They, uh, yeah, I mean, they're right. Goblins but... just are perfect. They're so attuned <laughs> to the true ways of the world that they recognize the, <laughs> the truth. Yeah. It just reminds me of like, uh, like I think I've compared goblins to little kids before. Um, and Ram Jam definitely had that sort of vibe of being a kindergartner who Avery was trying to wrangle a bit. Um, but like the fact that all the goblins just love Snowdrop, it reminds me of what Avery was complaining about in 9.8, mm-hmm. uh, where how, how it's always like young kids who always look at Avery and think, God, she's so cool. But Avery seems to think that nobody her own age or above her age ever feels that way. It's like, yeah. like why is it always little kids who think she's the boss? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it, like this is the same thing happening with Snowdrop. Snowdrop, it's like the metaphorical children just all look up to Snowdrop in the same way. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thought of them as children, I think, is perfect. <laughs> they, they are so pure. <laughs> um, and I think that's why I keep... I, uh, I, I, I always keep coming back to this idea in my head whenever I'm thinking about this story about what Pekasnot is going to turn into because he's like... He's a baby and he's growing up and Verona is pulling him away from the more toxic parts of goblin culture pretty consistently. And I'm so excited to see where that goes. Yeah. 
hopefully we will see. I mean, I think that's another Verona-centric beat that we will continue yeah. to explore throughout the final parts of this uh, story. Yeah, she just has to get over this whole thing with her dad first. Yeah, to get to the A-plot of Pekka's development. <laughs> um, there's also this other bit where Avery starts to like think about the whole Verona situation and, and like how she wants to tackle that and how her parents weren't very helpful when she called them. Um, and so she just sort of turns to Ram Jam and says, what do you do to fix a broken heart or a broken spirit or a broken mind? And uh, I mean, I just love that Avery would ask a goblin this, like that's a real testament to her willingness to reach out uh, <laughs> and get help that this, this goblin has just spent like 500 words talking about shoving nails in his face or in other people's bodies. And she's like, how would you fix a broken heart? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually a surprisingly Verona approach to the problem, which maybe makes me think she might be onto something. Yeah, interesting. I like it. It is a very, like, get the others involved, communicate with them, let's see how it goes kind of approach. Well, and Avery thinks on how, like, Verona likes the dark and stuff, and that's not really something she can relate to. So she maybe a bit insultingly looks at Ramcham and says, maybe he's closer. <laughs> Uh, classic. Um, yeah. Yeah. As an aside, you touched on the masks a bit ago. Mm. What do we think? Do you have any idea what the deal with Avery's mask is? Because, like, we've talked about how Verona's mask shattering is a bit of a metaphor for her herself getting shattered mm. uh, when her dad broke all her shit uh, and, and just escalated things. But I still I, I haven't quite clicked as to what the deal is with Avery's antler having come off. Hmm. I think the thing that feels, I, I don't know for sure, but I think the thing that feels the closest to me is possibly the the perception of a, of herself that Avery had when she did the awakening ritual. The, the growth that she has gone through has fundamentally changed how she sees herself to an extent that the old encapsulation of that doesn't apply as much. And so it's kind of broken as it 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 adjusts to the new Avery, which is why it's broken. But in a way that it's kind of also repaired itself or allows itself to be repaired. That's kind yeah. of what, where I feel at the moment. But again, I don't really know. <laughs> I guess like my addendum to that would be uh, like Avery's final words in 8.8 that actually finished off the entire arc with that bit where she was like, she's going to tackle problems prongs on. Yeah. And then we sort of realize, hey, her mask is broken and she hasn't managed to fix it or figure it out yet. So I don't, Maybe it's a metaphor for how she's still figuring out what prongs on looks like. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Or, uh, you know, the more she uses her prongs, the more an, a deer uses their prongs, the more likely they are to break, right? I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, somebody mentioned after I brought this up last week as well that um, deer, their antlers fall off and then they grow new ones. Mm, yes. Um, so so yeah, maybe she's going like, to grow new antlers. Who knows? Yeah, or, or like what she replaces them with will be like bigger and cooler or something. There's some rebirth thing. Mm. I mean, specifically what I found according to Google was that they grow the new antlers for mating season. So it's all foreshadowing her finding her new GF. Mm. Mm. Maybe. <laughs> Who's it going to be though? We know it's probably, there's no one in town that's a good fit for her. Well, yeah, she hasn't met them yet. That's, ah. It's like she'll grow the she'll grow the prongs and then somebody will just drive in from out of town in that same scene mm. and it'll be like a real meat cute fair enough 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, Avery and Lucy continue on Melissa's trail, getting some top tips from Nettie. Oh, this is so cool. I'd actually totally forgotten that Ken could do this and split into those aspects of certain parts of town. Um, so yeah, uh, it's so fun. Like that sort of nervous energy and paranoia that Nettie kind of has is it perfectly captures this, this vibe of being the quote unquote bad part of town. Um, but in a way that like the story doesn't ever quite have to spell it out. You just kind of pick it up from what Avery's noticing because she doesn't quite get it. Mm. Uh, and then, yeah, like Nettie just has, she's so much cooler than Ken, right? <laughs> she is. She seems to be the cooler parts. Uh, like, I don't think it's surprising that she's the one who not only just chats to Lucy, but also is the one who actually gives out gifts and seems to care about mm. how those gifts are received. Mm. Like, I can totally just see Ken being like, oh, Avery, like, I put this together for you. Here you go. And just sort of like tossing it at her. Whereas Nettie, like, takes the time to explain it, um, seems genuinely concerned about how Avery's going to receive it, like, She's just so much less of a lazy arsehole, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, Avery calls out how much she prefers Nettie as well. Um, oh, and I, I, well, is that Lucy? I think, I think they agree. Oh, is it? But yeah. Yeah, um, yeah a- again, just the part of town that less has its head up its ass and thinks it's better than everyone else. So mm. it's just, just easier to talk to. Mm. Uh, also, uh, I guess it's time for what it, I feel like is becoming a weekly segment where I talk about the fact that it's summer now. <laughs> um, what does it mean? Because <laughs> like, the thing that came up this week that, that prodded the, the weekly segment is um, Avery spends a bunch of time thinking about how Kennet is like less in the summer because but it is a ski tourist town. Um, and that's something we knew, but we haven't thought about for so long because it's summer. Um, and I'm just like, I just kind of think it can't be a coincidence that this stuff all happened now. Like, I think in the past we've speculated that maybe the culprits didn't know exactly when the Carmine Beast would get killed or whatever, or mm. like with all this stuff going on. But I'm I just thinking on this, it's like with all the tourists not here and, and, and like Kennet being more isolated and stuff than it usually is, it feels very important that this is all happening now. Like the, if the others were going to sort of take control, it would be when, when the town isn't at its biggest and when it's at its most isolated. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, you're right. I, you're right that it, it feels like there needs to be something that's going on with Ken to justify his relatively late entry into the story. Right. In the same way that, um, and, and, to, to a much higher extent of involvement that we've seen from, for example, Montague or Jabba, right, or, or the ghouls. Yeah. It feels like Ken is more a focus of the end of this story. So there needs to be something going on there. I don't know if that if the summer stuff feels right to me, but I don't know. Uh, I, like, I guess the other thing I was thinking, like, in terms of this was, like, with all the ski tourism, like, as the town kind of grows then, it, mm. it's not just growing in terms of the people and, and the innocence or whatever, but I wonder if that is when other others reach out. Like, if the town becomes more of a thing in the winter, like, it, maybe it just isn't, it, it isn't only human tourists who come by, basically. And, and so that, could be part of it as well. There's also an other reason for wanting to do it during the summer. Mm. Yeah. 
don't know. Well, yeah, we'll see. I just, again, it just it has felt like a thing to me three weeks in a row. Maybe that's like a positive feedback loop. Or maybe it's a thing. Mm. Um, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Um, now, onto the more interesting question, which is this, Elliot. We know that there's Ken and there's Nettie, and we know that Ken can split up into like four different people. So I'm really curious if Ken splits into four, what would the how would you split the the town Kennet into four different names? Like, oh, this is K, this is N, this is N, and this is T, <laughs> or is it like Northside K? Oh, hi, I'm Downtown E, or whatever. I just want to know. Um, it's a dumb question, but I'm very curious <laughs> as to the answer to it. Well, you're right because between Ken and Nettie. We've kind of used the entire word. Yeah, that's Kenneth. it, right? Um, so, like, if there are three other facets or whatever that we haven't met, that's sort of three other names Wildbow needs to pull from the word Kenneth. Mm. Um, I could see, like, a bogan part being Kenny. Oh, yeah. Um, I suppose they don't have bogans in Canada. Whatever the Canadian word for bogans is. Mm. But, like, the, the part that... The part of Ken that feels really like the bad parts of Ken that we tend to talk about on this podcast, like that part conduced, I could see it being Kenny. Mm, yeah, I could see that. But then that's using up so much of the word. Or does each person get their own version of the word Kenneth? So it's Ken, yeah. Nettie, Kenny, and like Ennett. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Or, I, or, yeah. Yeah. I don't know either. That's a wild boat. That's wild boat's job. <laughs> mm, yeah um, well Bo, let us know uh <laughs> if i don't get the answer to this question by the end of the story i will be disappointed <laughs> <laughs> this is the this is the most challenging writing uh challenge he's ever set himself mm-hmm. um but yeah she, can we talk about avery's gift here as mm. well um so she gets first of all this like again another little barometer thing um where she just made herself one in the bracelet uh, and now she's got a thing that basically tells her how much the spirits of a location are vibing with her, um, which just feels like, you know, Avery's always been that person who kind of, well, I, I suppose probably more Lucy actually, but wanted to know how, like what people thought of her or was worried what people thought of her. Mm. And, and I get, well, no, actually what it is with Avery, she's literally gotten a symbol of how much she belongs in a place, um, which feels very appropriate to her. And then also some ritual stuff that like, will make a place more chill with her doing stuff. Mm, yeah. Which, like, does that work on the paths? Like, is yeah. this Yeah, I wonder. Like, is she going to add this stuff from Nettie here to her familiar ritual on the paths in order to make it more, even more compatible with the paths? Mm. Like, I, I feel like th- this stuff is meant to be used for, yeah, you know, you can help vibe with a street or something, but Avery's just going to take it and put it in the paths or something. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. It's interesting. Um, the gift stuff. I I feel like Ken, Ken, Nettie, whatever. I'm just going to continue to refer to, to it as Ken. Ken's gifts are the most interesting to me because they they tie the practitioners, the Kennetiers, to into the town in such a tangible way that i really like yeah also this city mage stuff or whatever you want to call it yeah. has just completely won me over as one of the coolest i know isn't it so cool it's so 
I feel like of all the practitionership we've seen in the story, it would be the the one that's the most practically useful in real life. Yeah, and, like and just every little detail about it, I'm in love with. Like the bit where Ken's like, "Oh, sometimes to get a street on side, you'll have to do something for it, like pick up trash." Yeah, like, it's just, uh, it's, it's perfect. How chill! It's so great. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we also find out from Nettie that Verona has been talking to Ken that she intentionally told Ken not to tell anybody, including Lucy and Avery, what gift she requested, which is almost certainly a terrible sign, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a very mean tease by Wildbo <laughs> yeah. to just drop, oh yeah, Verona's been talking to Ken as well, and she got a gift, and you can't know what it is, you idiots. Um, like, it definitely felt like it was designed to fuck with us. Um, yeah. I mean, when I first read it, I, I sort of had the same alarmist picture um, where it was like, I was like, oh, God, has she found a spot for her domain and she's doing a <laughs> fucking domain ritual? That's such a bold um, thing for Lucy to say. That seems, I mean, I don't know. I Maybe well, not, that but that like, seems too much for Verona to do right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that was like the, the moment. Like, for me, I was sort of like, oh, shit, is she going to do the domain ritual? And then Lucy pitched it as an idea. And I was like, oh, good, the story said it. So I can't, yeah. that's not what's happening. Yeah. Uh, um uh, but like i think that was the other thing as well is like avery says to trust verona mm. and like just the way everything's going i'm inclined to just think that we should as well so i'm actually thinking verona's probably actually just doing something really clever and she'll pop up whenever and we're gonna be like oh that was cool mm. um what you did to hide the furs but uh i don't I, again like i'm someone who definitely when i get very emotional like like this i would do the same thing as verona and need time alone mm. so i want the lesson here to be that it was good that they reached out made sure she was okay got her to promise not to do something stupid but then left her alone for the part of the processing she needs to do herself mm. yeah no you're right i think that's uh i think it will i think it's helpful to verona the that she's doing what she's doing now i'm just worried that it's not going to be enough for her to not do something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, she promised, so she has to. Oh, yeah, great, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Lucy and Avery walk to the apartment block where Melissa is and realise she is inside talking to Reagan's family. Oh, so good. Mm -hmm. I think we kept saying, like, you know, back in Arc 6 and 7, that it was like, so weird that the Hogwarts Choir only ever throws Gabe at us and not mm -hmm. Reagan, like. Why, you know, what are we saving Reagan for? And it turns out it was this. It's this, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's great. Uh, although as they're going there, Avery tells this story about a mother who overly praised her possibly handicapped children and then relates that to Verona. And I, I don't know what to take from this. Like, possibly it's just further hinting at, at Verona's dad being off in a non-traditional way, e.g., like Avery says, I've seen strict parents and angry parents, et cetera, and it felt different. It felt like this other thing. So Verona's dad is something else, something off that isn't that, and maybe it's because he's turning into another, but that's just me doing my <laughs> fan theory, I think. I, the vibe I got from it was mm. very much along the lines of this week's discussion question, um, which is this whole idea of the boundaries around people or their and they're like their families mm. like my takeaway here is this kid clearly had like something going on like i don't know if it's an actual problem or just like yeah bad parenting or yeah like whatever yeah. i'm in no way qualified to say what 
this could relate to. Yeah. But the whole vibe is something's wrong here. This kid is shitting all over the place. And mm. the Kellys dealt with it by not saying something to those parents and then making fun of them afterwards. And like it, it fit into this whole idea for me that at least in Western culture, it's very taboo to at all suggest somebody isn't raising their child correctly. Um, and so like that would probably be a motivator for like Avery's mum not to say anything to this other mum. Mm. Um, because like trying to bring up a problem with the child is something that I feel like the mum would take as an attack on her parenting. Mm. Um, again, I used to teach kids swimming and sometimes you had to have conversations like this. And a lot of times like parents just see it as an attack on who they are as parents rather than you trying to help them. Mm. Um, and oh, like, so I guess that's how I see it relating to Verona's situation is it's like nobody, part of the reason nobody did anything about Verona's stuff is because it wasn't like, Verona wasn't reaching out and asking for help. There wasn't any, like, it wasn't super noticeable that something is terribly wrong. So everyone just kind of let it be. Um, and, and, you know, there probably are people who have kind of laughed about how weird Verona is that, you know, we just don't hang out with them in this story because they're shitheads. But, like, I feel like that's the connection Avery's making. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the, Avery's mum being silent and and not kind of engaging with it as a marker for like you shouldn't challenge how another person is raising their child. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, it, it just yeah, it, it's just I, I guess it's seen as very bad by most people to try and interfere with somebody else's family or the way like the way it's going. Mm. Um. Yeah. I guess we'll get more into it in the discussion question because this comes up. Yeah. Yeah, true. Um, heading up to the Perry's apartment, the duo meets Steph, a mother whose life seems like a foggy void that she can't quite escape from. Oh, I mean, this whole this whole thing is very... Uh, it's a great, like, horror concept. Like, seeing this woman whose life has been altered in a way that is clearly bad for her and affecting her, and it just nothing can stick and there's this tent yeah it's great mm, yeah um oh this is a very haunting scene huh um, that's a good word for it yeah when the hungry choir did what it did consuming regan it, it's clearly so paper thin the erasure that that there is here like it feels like it could come shattering down at any moment and Honestly, it feels like it effectively almost does in this chapter and, and might in the next chapter from the ramifications of what happens in this apartment. Um, Melissa is in such a shitty, dangerous position throughout the entirety of this chapter from, as soon as she, we see her and she just refuses to realize it until the very end when it's too late. <laughs> yeah, um, like every time somebody prodded Steph about Reagan and she got, I don't even know what the word I want for is here, but like the, when she had those moments of like seeming clarity, but you could see she wasn't putting the thoughts together and then they'd wash away the second it wasn't present on her mind. Um, like that whole, it, it's so creepy. And I, I just, every time somebody pushed it, I was just waiting for like a dam to burst and, and for the shit to hit the fan. And it, it, it comes in a very different way soon. But um, yeah, there was this tension of like, you, you're just waiting for, 
something to click with enough force pressured and it it would all go wrong. Mm, yeah. And it, that doesn't happen yet, but it feels like it might still happen next chapter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially like we know Melissa heard a bunch of this stuff uh with the with the composite kid, but yeah. we don't know we don't know how much Steph and Howie heard. Yeah. Um just and again with Melissa like it was just more of like this this whole scene where she's just really the one who's like pushing Steph and it's just I'm like again it's more of this Melissa stuff where it's like I I get why you like this and why you think this is a problem but can you just get your head out of your ass for five seconds please Mm. yeah yeah she just won't um as as Steph's fog starts to get agitated, Lucy and Avery make their exit, only to find the composite kid is standing outside. Avery gets through to him, though. Yeah, yeah. I like back in the police station. I had this kid pegged as the one who was actually a piece of shit, but maybe it's actually Bridge who fits that label better. Get maybe mm. we'll see. Maybe I should just stop looking for somebody to be <laughs> unambiguously a piece the, of shit. The capital V villain. Yeah. Yeah, I just miss Bristow because, like, you know, like things were a bit easier when you had someone like Bristow in the story where I could just point at him and be like, "What a piece of shit!" Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder how Bristow's doing—not <laughs> well, but like, how not well? Yeah, um, yeah. The composite kid is interesting, huh? So he's made up from the scattered remnants of the hungry choir stuff, which is a great origin story for another. But Avery yeah. almost immediately realizes that this means he has their positive qualities too and can be bonded with through that, which is so Avery. It's so perfect. Mm. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um he he's so willing to write himself off as just the worst parts. Yeah. And Avery isn't having any of it, and she pushes through this hurt and the pain to get to the person underneath. So it, it ties fantastically to what her and Lucy are trying to do with Verona as well. Because like he's he's somebody who's who's hurt and in pain and trying to find a way forward, and Avery manages to yeah reach past the blind spots he's put up and say no 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 there's more to you than that and it's this and it gets through to him mm. the same way it has a little bit and hopefully will continue to get through to Verona. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, she's so great. <laughs> great work, Avery. Um. This also just totally undermines any bullshit Matt and Edith have said this arc about, like, the whole Hungry Choir thing being acceptable casualties or whatever they actually call it, right? Like, the composite kid hates his life and Mm. is really, like, I don't know. Like, he's not not those kids, but he kind of is. Like, it's just, he's this literal embodiment of, uh, like, the leftovers and the pain and suffering that the Hungry Choir was causing. Yeah, um, yeah, he clearly is in pain, and it's interesting because he is caused by the fact that the Hungry Cry existed, but as he points out, like, the key thing that all these people had in common was desperation, right? Like, so they clearly weren't in a great place before they ran across the Hungry Choir either. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the very least... This shows that the worst thing about the Hungry Choir is that it's not even that efficient. Like, yeah, there's so much leftovers here. Like, you could use that for energy too, you stupid ritual. Yeah, Hungry Choir, use every part of the boy that you consume. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, otherwise you get the composite kid who, like, I, I yeah, 
is it not something you want? I mean, it's nice that some part of them survived, I guess, but also just let all of them survive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the other thing that's brought up for me uh, in this interaction here is, is again, I, I kind of brought this back to Edith because we just had a whole thing last chapter reminding us that she's various spirits and ideas. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, as we look at the composite kid and like reach past that one unifying part that all the people had, which was this desperation, we pull out the rest of the the people and the uh, underneath. Like, could we do the same thing for Edith and like, or not Edith, but the girl by candlelight who mm-hmm. is sort of you know, obviously got this this fire imagery associated with all all her aspects. But like, is there more there that we can kind of pull out? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, does it maybe indicate that there's possibly a route through which Avery could get through to one of the things that makes up Edith? Yeah. So, so I looked it up, like, because we got this description in one dot three of from Matthew about the girl by candlelight that he originally found. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the ghost of a girl who suffocated on smoke in a house fire. The emotions and spirits shed in a roadside candlelit vigil for a teenage girl who died in a car accident. Mm. And a child's pyromania manifested in anxiety and confusion cast away as the child grew up. Mm. So like, there's definitely this sense of loss associated with all of those. Yeah. But also it's the other verse. So I don't know how much of that is just like, that's what causes echoes and, and spirits in this world. Um there's definitely like it, it feels like there's going to be something like if the girl by candlelight is is the main villain or whatever and we, like there's going to be more to understand from her based on i think the the echoes she's comprised of like, like there was for the composite kid mm, yeah yeah it's interesting i don't know i don't quite see exactly what it will tell us about edith yet but it does feel you're right like there's some link here that we should be taking note of yeah, yeah, I haven't quite managed to put it together. Like, I, I mean, one thing could be like a lot of this stuff is is violent or or mourning. Mm. So like mm. maybe it'll kind of be the opposite of the composite kid. Like he he came across as uh, like violent and desperate, and the humanity was hidden underneath. Whereas maybe the girl by candlelight has done the opposite and hi- hidden inside Edith to present this more human yeah version true. of herself than there really is and maybe she's maybe she's the opposite yeah well i mean you know we've gotten beats about how reserved edith felt maybe there was an intentional holding back because the real girl by candlelight is actually horrific in some way yeah oh, and there was that lesson again it was from 8.1 from metaphaos where he talked about the naturally occurring gods and how they like they're often missing parts of humanity Mm. um so maybe that was talking about the girl by candlelight interesting yeah um so yeah every manages to get through to the composite kid and he decides to be nice which is good and just in time because he tells them they <laughs> should run because uh the abyss beast and the other imposters have arrived yeah um which is yeah okay so um there's a lot to deal with here because we obviously like we learn about this abyss beast um and uh, like what i think is great here so the kennedy's reached through to the composite kid in this way where it's like his he had this this stupid defiance to him where he was sort of like i'm gonna do this crazy plan to make the town a, a, abyssal 
and you know that'll make things really bad but the the strong come out on top and and you know that'll be good for me and i'll come out of it stronger which was like a very hungry choir way of approaching the problem like you can see how a kid built up of all the people who entered this stupid ass ritual would would think that that's a good plan Mm. um because it's very much like the hungry choir is very much put a bunch of people in a bad situation and the strong come out even stronger Mm. uh and like Avery and the gang, they didn't manage to talk Gabe out of doing this. Um, they didn't really have the have the chance with Reagan, but here they kind of get this person who is like all of the hungry choir's victims, and they manage to say like, "Hey, this isn't the way to approach problems," and it works. Yeah, and that's it's like a nice little extra bit of closure on the hungry choir arc that they get to take the remnants of all these people and convince them to take a better path after the fact. Mm yeah yeah it's... also like sorry the abyss has been teased for so long and <laughs> like we, like this whole story is kind of been like the abyss gets name dropped and it's like what is this place it sounds terrible and yeah. now we're seeing it in action it seems pretty terrible yeah seeing what seems to be the manifestation of this place uh it's kind of like a shape-shifting monster uh that is <laughs> infecting the can infect the world around it Fun, fun, seems good. Yeah. Yep. Oh, and here we learn that the abyss is like chaos, uh, like a place of just pure chaos. And this yeah. is like, yeah, this thing will just cause, like, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it, it's such a great, like, what a great idea for a villain, like, to have this place kind of set up throughout, like, n- 10 arcs or so of just like, oh, yeah, the abyss, you don't want to go there or whatever. And then we finally get this baddie who's like, yeah, this is just like a giant abyssal beast. <laughs> and, it's chaos. It's, that's great. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. It's uh, it's gonna be fun. I'm sure. Um, so fun beat. Avery asks, "Should I call John?" Lucy pauses, but then nods. Yes, John's back in the story. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Can't wait. Um, this is also good. Like. Yeah, I, I sorry, I'm just I'm 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 jumping back a bit in my head to like this whole idea of that uh what's his face composite kid and and the others had. So they want they want to use this abyss beast to turn Kennet into a really shitty place and the idea being oh uh we'll rise up stronger or whatever and it'll be easier for us to take advantage. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like uh, this again ties them in my head to what the culprits are because we've heard that the culprits want this carmine shit to keep going and they're probably not going to fix it or make it better so like are these three just worse versions of the culprits like the abyssal thing would be their hungry choir and then like like these other three are just yeah they tie maybe they tie into the culprits in a way that they're just kind of worse versions of them mm. or, or we're sneaky um like i could almost even see obviously edith has been tied to the composite kid in that they're both complex spirits yeah um matt is mckay in that he's like the closest to just a human and is just a bit of a chump mm. uh who's kind of nice but gets in too deep then mm. i don't know marcy's bridge because they're both new and they're trying to grow i don't know yeah i could see that yeah interesting yeah feels like a, a fan theory that I don't know if we'll actually see it pay off or not, to be honest. 
I don't know if it's something the story would ever explicitly spell out, but maybe it'll be one of those things where when the story's over, you can be like, we'll be able to you tie it map, together more. Yeah, yeah, these three a bit. Yeah, um, let's uh, let's wait and see. I guess. Also, should we talk about uh, Melissa, who maybe finally got it into her head that this shit isn't worth digging into? I mean, I guess we could. Probably too late. I don't know. I'm uh, I'm happy to let Melissa limp along behind our protagonists and get into <laughs> trouble. Uh, she deserves it. She's been consistently the worst. So, <laughs> oh yeah, but she she seems to finally get the message at the end of this chapter. Like Lucy has a bit where she's like, yeah. wish she'd kept out of this, and Melissa's like, ah, oh, yeah, and it's like, well, like Avery right now could give Melissa the biggest "I told you so" in the history of the universe. Mm. <laughs> Yep. Um, yeah, I'm sure we will see more of Melissa next chapter, obviously. Uh, and I'm excited for her to <sighs> reveal that she's realizing just how fucking wrong she was. Yeah. I, like, yeah, I I do hope we're looking at a Melissa interlude. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been saying that for four chapters now or something, so we'll see. <laughs> um oh. Sorry, also, the, the Abyss Beast, I just looked it up. Its name is Bathos. Bathos, yes. Which is, uh, I, I googled that, and it's it's a word. And especially in a literary work, it refers to an effect of anticlimax created by an unintentional lapse in mood from the sublime to the trivial or ridiculous. Hmm. What is that? So, what do we think that means? I mean, I guess... It, is this just highlighting maybe Bathos is like super dark by pale standards, which mm. means we've actually been playing in kitty mode the whole time. Mm. Uh, I don't know. An unintentional lapse in mood. Yeah. I don't know. Guess we'll see. This is a very impromptu name game that we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's the end of these chapters. Uh, this is a week with no extra material. Which means we'll have to wait until the uh, continuation of these chapters to find out uh, what happens next. But before then, let's take a look at some predictions made by our community in our Pale Predictor uh, app. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, do you want to pull out your prediction first? Sure. So I have one from Zitazdaz, mm-hmm. um, who basically has predicted that the rain knife that only cuts in the rain, you know that one we made fun of last week? Um, that will be super effective in the ruins and could maybe even help with cutting up the carmine furs. Um, this prediction, I think, was made before 9.11. Mm-hmm. So, um, or actually, no, it was even made before 9.10. So, uh, like, obviously, the ship has maybe sailed on it being used to cut the carmine furs already. But well, I do like the idea of, like, uh, this knife being extra effective in different realms. That was an angle I hadn't considered and seems particularly suited to Avery. Yes. We don't know. I mean, maybe Verona has the knife and is going to use it in when we see what <laughs> she's been up to. I don't know. I like yeah, it, though. Yeah, I guess we'll Thematically, see. it's quite nice. Um, my prediction I put out was from Alex V, uh, who... Uh, this is such a great theory. Effectively, <laughs> that the several of the culprits involved with the Carmine murder stuff, instead of being several culprits, actually is several spirits within the complexity of the girl by candlelight. In 9.10, we hear one of these spirits call out in a voice that isn't Edith's, 
or The Girl by Candlelights. Then another one that is Edith's calls out. And this kind of parallels to when we've heard, you know, there was that bit where Lucy overheard uh, somebody talking that was a woman's voice and she couldn't quite place who it was, but it was probably Edith. Like that could have been one of Edith's other spirits, you know? Um, (laughs) I think this theory is so great and I really like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It it would be very fun if this whole idea, like it, everything like can we talk about the girls was just different aspects of the girl by candlelight having mm. a debate. Yeah. Um. Yeah, this would feel like a reveal where we'd go back and be like, oh, it was right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, How cool is it? Such a good one. Yeah. So well played, Alex V. If it turns out to be true, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, and then this week we ran a discussion question. So... Uh, we should dive into all of our answers uh, on that. Yeah. Um, I Well, so the discussion question was, should Avery, Luce, or Jazz have done more about Verona's situation? We got a lot of different responses around this. I think a fair number of people, a fair number of people commented effectively the idea that somebody should have done something more, but Avery, Lucy, and Jazz all kind of are off the hook for it in different ways. Um, yeah, which I kind of want to dive into people's reasoning behind that because I'm not. I, I think there's a bit. I think there's a bit more to it than people make out. I don't know. Mm. Well, yeah. should we? Let's dive into some of the answers and we can kind of expand on our thoughts as we go. I guess. Yeah. Um, I we got an answer from stuck in Reddit factory that I really liked, which isn't so much should people have done more, but what should they do? And it's very simple: burn the house down, and. I, this is so perfect. So effectively, because of a number of things, VD has effectively said the reason the reason why I'm working so hard, working myself to the bone, is to provide this nice house for you, a nice house that Vern has repeatedly said, this is not what I want, and you're taking care of me in a way that isn't what I need. But VD is kind of stuck in this rut because of this house. Burn the house down. It will be a big enough thing to shake it up without necessarily like um without necessarily like doing anything crazy but we'll <laughs> well i mean it is a bit crazy but it will like shake <laughs> shake up the situation enough that vd will have to reconsider what he's doing and be forced to move into a different situation in life and and theoretically might be a catalyst to cause positive change in a way that i found so satisfying and i think Sometimes you get theories or suggestions that are so powerful that it just feels like it's a given that they're going to happen. And this feels like that to me. Reading through this, I was like, this is just so perfect. It must be true. (laughs) It definitely, I do love it as an idea to shake up the dynamic in a way that doesn't directly make it, like when Verona has directly tried to push him and escalate things, it comes back to bite her. If the house was burnt down in a way that he couldn't blame Verona, um. It may not come back to bite her as mm, much. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's definitely like yeah, like as as Bird kind of touches on. Brett has used the concept of the house so much as a reason for everything, and that kind of ties into Verona's whole poor concept of home and where the domain fits in. So the idea of just burning it down uh, is definitely has its appeal uh yeah i think it's so good <laughs> um, um so i i pulled out an answer from uh meiji how who says maybe jazz could have done more but we see in can we talk about the girls 
that Brett can imitate being a functional person. So maybe Jazz didn't realize, um, which I, I, I sort of challenged them on in the thread. And I said, I think Jazz knows that the house situation is bad. That's why she, the first thing she does is always check on Verona. Um, but Meiji House says that like they think Jazz had probably done everything she was morally obligated or, or should have to do by letting Verona stay and constantly checking on her. Mm. Um, I mean, Meiji House's main thing was that they'd rather blame Verona's mum, uh, which I think is fair, and I think we all agree on that one. Like, Verona's mum has dropped the ball, something fierce, um, to the point where I almost don't want to bother with her as an answer because she's clearly so incapable of pulling her weight. Yeah. (sighs) Man, all these answers go through all these people that might be culpable for for Verona's situation and just there's just no solutions in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the closest ones, like one I really like, so Megafire, uh, their answer overlapped, overlapped with Meiji Howe on like a sort of a number of points, like yeah. justifying why Jazz wasn't in a position because um, that's just not the way the system is designed. Um, like, you know, it would, we, we touched on this earlier in the episode, but it favors biological parents and stuff. Yes. So she probably yes. wouldn't have been able to get anything done. Um, also Megafire wants to blame the mum, which again is fair. Uh, but Megafire pointed to an aspect I didn't see any, brought up anywhere else, which is, um, maybe the school mm. itself. Um, like obviously if there is a school counselor, uh, n- none of the Kenneteers are using it. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> th- this idea of like, if Lucy or Avery reached out to someone like Miss Hardy or mm. whoever and tried to get the school involved in a way that got the government to take it more seriously, maybe that maybe that would be an institution that could affect change. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Um, we don't necessarily know if that's a possibility, but I do like it. I do like that it's a new solution that we we can potentially look to. Um, the, yeah. the failure of the system theme is one that came up in a few answers. Lurking Beluga is another person who touched on the failure of the system. Um, you know, we know that CPS or whatever the Canadian equivalent is has got involved at some point, but deemed VD not enough of a problem. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a clear failing of the system there. Um, I yeah, would... that, I mean, true. Like, yeah, the fact that people apparently came to the house from the government and said, "Yes, this is yes, all this in is order. fine." Like, yeah, clearly <laughs> a problem. Um, I want to pull out the uh, an answer from Tsar Watt, who runs through effectively runs through a list of every single character and whether they should have done more. And there's there's not really many... I mean, some of the these bits are, are touched on in other answers, but the ones that I thought were unique and interesting were, one, obviously Verona's mum is 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 responsible for this, although something that Tisa Watt points out is we've only really seen Verona's mum from the perspective of Verona, who is still obviously a child. And for all we know, Verona's dad was abusive to Verona's mum as well. Um, so p- potentially there's a very solid reason why she won't get involved. Um, yeah, but that, that's all the more reason to take Verona. I mean, yes, 100%. But, you know, it's, it, that would make it quite a complex situation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Tisawat also rightfully points blame at Miss, uh, noting that the, oh. the, the reason that Verona was chosen to become a Kenneteer was because Miss could kind of tell that she was in such a shitty home situation, right? Like... Uh, the the subtext there being that Miss probably knew Verona was being abused, um, and the fact that she's so 
aware of how bad things are, therefore implies she has some responsibility to do to to help make things better for Verona. And you know what? Maybe that's what Miss was trying to do, but uh, got taken out of the picture a bit too quickly. Who knows? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, back in Arc One, Miss gave the impression to Verona that she was on board with Verona becoming another, and it was all part of her plan for choosing her. Yeah. Um. So was that like some sort of yeah. double bluff situation? Oof. Or, um. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. Like Miss Miss either needs to be able to claim that she was, yeah, pulling strings and playing 5d chess or uh cop some of the blame for seeing a girl being abused like this and thinking yeah we can manipulate her into wanting to be another Mm. (sighs) i I wanted to pull out an answer from captain rhino as well Mm -hmm. um because captain rhino brought up uh, a a really interesting point uh that kind of went against a lot of the others in that uh captain rhino brought up when you shift the balance away from biological parents and sort of make it easier for kids to be taken away from them. Well, that has existed in the past and is often used to oppress people, especially minorities. Um, they cited like times this was used to take uh, Indigenous Canadians away from their parents. Mm. Um, obviously, here in Australia, we have the stolen generation. Mm. Um, so, like, I can very much picture these worst case scenarios. Yes, definitely. Um, and so, Captain Rhino was saying they're not really sure what systems. Th- what changes the system could or should make that would maintain this balance of like pushing power away from abusers like Verona's dad that doesn't open it up to abuse based on, you know, some, some other sort of demographic or abuse towards some other demographic. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I just thought was like an interesting, it made me stop and think about wanting to pull, wanting to get the system to change, to pull Verona away from her dad super easily because it brought up the reason it's kind of like this is to protect other people. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thing that I hadn't considered either is what downsides them. Because, you know, obviously when we think of, oh, CPS should get involved, it's very easy to, to envisage the perfect ideal of what that would look like. But one, that's not necessarily the case. And two, there might be very good reasons why, even if that was the case, Verona might not want to do that. And that's something that uh, Beard of Valor pulled out in their answer. They were kind of relating their own experiences uh, to Verona's experiences and using that to kind of elaborate on on why some of these solutions might not be so good. And I think the thing that I got from Beard's answer, which I really liked, was um, in Verona's mind, a CPS intervention, even if it's if it goes like in air quotes, ideally, might cause some real actual problems. Like one, she could end up with her mum, which is obviously a bad solution, or she could end mm. up being moved away from Kennet and away from Lucy and Avery, which is bad for practitioner reasons for personal reasons for all kinds of reasons like from Verna's perspective rocking the boat to that extent might be worse than just i mean in her head might be worse than just in air quotes putting up with her dad right um even the the theoretical ideal answer of getting cps to to realize that there's a problem here and they need to step in isn't isn't necessarily a good solution (laughs) there's there's no good answer to this situation I love how this is tying into like the overall themes of the story because mm. like like what Captain Rhino was talking about reminds me of how like you know the the reason practitioners were formed is because there were a lot of predatory others attacking humans so this system kind of got set up that said okay we're going to let the humans fight back and hold their own space and that was good and made sense at the time and then it's kind of grown into something that isn't appropriate and you can yeah 
you can you can see this this connection to something like Rona, where it's like okay there was like bad shit happening in the past so we've set up this system that favors biological parents rights to raise their children but it's kind of like whenever you build blanket rules like this simple simple systems that can be summarized in one sort of agreement mm. there's always going to be some people left behind by them like i just don't think there is a way to build a system that gets it right 100 percent of the time yeah and isn't open to abuse one way or the other yeah um and, and similarly like be it a valor's answer which by the way is like very long and, and very like personal and, and yeah. you know comes from like a really uh emotional place like it was a really good answer i think that's worth saying for all of these answers we're summarizing them but yeah. there's a lot of really good thoughts in here that's worth reading through um yeah but, but like again like what Beard of Valor's answers touches on is this idea that we've been talking about with the uh, first, where it's like, uh, just because you find out who done it, it doesn't mean the, the problems are over. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the same, like, just because CPS might come in and then say, okay, yeah, Verona's dad, bad, he done it. Mm. Um, that like, that causes problems of its own, depending on how it's handled. Yeah, I guess it's fair to say that complex problems won't just have simple solutions. And uh, that applies in the mundane world of an abusive parent and in the magical world of a, you know, judge murder, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. It just shows how much thought gets put in this story into, like, integrating all of these problems. Like, you know, Verona's home situation was something that was built by Walbo because it thematically related to what he was talking about. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, I won't see where Verona ends up at the end of the story as this statement on these topics in their entirety but it it will definitely sort of you know be saying something about potential solutions to s certain problems you know so yeah. like, it would be weird for pale to sort of make blanket statements on anything because i feel like so much of what the story is brought up is blanket statements don't work for everyone <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah for sure um but yeah, a lot of really great discussion question answers. So uh, if you haven't gone through and read them, you can do that by checking out the Reddit thread for our previous episode. Um, do we want to? We didn't think of another discussion question. I think I, I like the idea of doing them maybe fortnightly, so that we have time for uh, people to write these very deep and emotional personal responses, but not necessarily have to do that every week. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we'll be back next week with a discussion question. Yes. But of course you can still comment in our discussion thread, which you'll find linked in the show notes down below. If you have any thoughts on this episode or the show or pale in general. Uh, yes. You can also find us on Twitter. Just search power reflections It's where the live reads happen. It's where the episodes are announced, not just this one, but pace as well. Uh, which uh these next two episodes coming up you definitely want want to find out the second they're out these are some good ones yeah 100 percent um yeah uh if you want to support the doof media network which this podcast is a proud member of uh you can head to doofmedia.com to find all the other shows on the network including the high ground which is a special show that we do uh just for patrons get give some more info on how to support the network and become a patron later but also the season finale of mm, What You Say has just come out, which is great, um, covering the final parts of season three of the OC. I haven't listened to it yet myself, um, but I am anticipating, given what I know about season three of the OC, for it to be a very fun one. Yeah, well, so the, there was one out last week that covers those two episodes, and then they're bringing one out next week, which kind of reflects on the season as a whole. Ah, wonderful. Um, so, yeah, and... I, I, I'm very interested to see what they say next week. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, as Ruben mentioned, uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash doofmedia. Uh, at the $10 or above tier, which is the doof troop or above, mm-hmm. uh, you get access to the bonus shows. So the one we released this week uh, is, is myself, Ruben, and my sister, Georgia. And we talk about, uh, well, at the moment, we're talking about Pirates of the Caribbean. So we just did the first one. And I think we all enjoyed it much more than we expected. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. very fun episode, very fun movie. So uh, come check it out. Yeah, definitely check that out. I think, um, uh, sorry, uh, The High Ground is the podcast that we're currently doing that I have the most fun recording. It's just such a delight to talk about these very silly movies. <laughs> and yeah, the episodes get pretty silly as well. So it's just a real fun time all around. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, while you're on Patreon, why not go to patreon.com forward slash Wabo and make sure you are giving some support to Wabo as well, uh, because he is the creator of these great worlds that we uh, exist in for two hours every week. So um, it's worth uh, giving him some money to celebrate that fact. Yeah. So with that note, we'll see you all next week for the end of Arc 9? Well, maybe. Maybe not. I, Who knows? I don't know anymore. <laughs> Nobody can tell. Is this arc our life now? This, we're going to get to <laughs> the nine. The story is, is all arc nine. Wabo promised himself he wouldn't hit arc ten. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be in this one for a while. <laughs> anyway, catch you all next time. See ya. Bye.